Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 3, Episode 2. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, you'll be hearing a really informative interview with Barry Dubin of KBP Foods and Mike Cherney of Grandmere Capital, two franchisees in the Yum! system that collectively own almost a 1,000 restaurants. We'll be talking about how they got into the franchise business, their revenue outlook for the industry, the impact of policy changes on restaurants, and their thoughts on the M&A market in terms of buying, selling, and financing restaurants in 2021. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. I'm really excited today to be here with Barry Dubin and Mike Cherney, and these guys are special people in my life at Unbridled Capital. You know, over the last, I'm, I'm trying to think, guys, over the last couple, three years, I think we've, you know, represented sellers uh, that have, you know, and you guys have bought about 300 of our of restaurants that we've sold, you know, and pretty much half, you know, half one and half the other. Uh, Mike's a primarily a Pizza Hut franchisee and Barry primarily a KFC and Taco Bell franchisee. And so they're going to have some dynamite perspectives here. I'm going to launch this little, this little presentation and just kind of uh, introduce them a little bit, and then and then I'm going to turn it over to them in a series of Q&A format so that you get to know them and you'll love their personalities. So uh, you can read a little bit about Barry and Mike. I mean, they're just excellent folks, tremendous backgrounds in private equity, and uh, they operate <laughs> some of the country's biggest restaurant brands. Great guys, really movers and shakers in the franchise industry, and so I'm excited to have them. And guys, welcome. Barry, Mike, welcome. Thanks for being here, really. Thanks, Rick. Happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Rick. Enjoy. Got uh, it. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was just kind of teasing Barry because he looks like he's got this fancy background behind him. And, uh, you know, and, and Mike and I are a little more boring than you are, Barry, but uh, I think Barry's out in Colorado. And so uh, uh, we're all over the country today. And I, I guess if we could just kind of start off, guys, why don't you just tell us a little bit? I mean, I don't I don't care who goes first. Maybe, you know, I, you know, Mike, you're on my screen. You're first and, sure. and, and Barry's second, it looks like. So, Maybe uh, you guys just throw around some of these questions. Let the audience know kind of what do you own and what's your role? You know, maybe take the first two questions, Mike, and then we'll throw it over to Barry and let him do the same. Yeah, sure. So uh, our business is called Grand Mirror Restaurant Group, and we own about 145 pizza huts in nine states. Uh, that's our primary business, um, and we're not in any other restaurant brands. I'm the CEO of the business, uh, and I have a partner, Victor Hughes, who's the president we kind of have a 50-50 responsibility for running the business. Victor runs sort of the four-wall operations of the business as well as the middle back office and kind of keeps uh, the train running in all aspects and has a long career and history in uh, operations in the restaurant business. Um, and I focus primarily on real estate finance and growth and sort of representing Grand Mere and the rest of the franchisees to the franchisor um, and so have focused on all of our M&A activities and optimizing our returns on the real estate. This business launched in 2016. Uh, and prior to that, um, I was in private equity for most of my career and kind of stumbled into the restaurant space after I met a second generation franchisee uh, in New York who kind of told me about the business. And it was sort of an intersection of operations investing in real estate and kind of piqued my interest as I looked to make 
a pretty major career move after spending 13 or 14 years in, in finance in New York. And we acquired our first business in uh, mid-2017. We bought 23 units from Rick, and that's how I got to know Rick, actually. When I launched the business, I flew down. It was in the nascent days of uh, Unbridled's you know, short but storied history already. And I spent two days, I think, in Rick's basement learning about the business and kind of talking through brands and strategy and things like that. And, you know, built a, a special friendship and business relationship with, with Rick through that process. And since then, as, uh, as I said, we've grown to about 145 units in nine states. Isn't that cool? I, I'll never forget it, Mike. You know, we found each other on LinkedIn, right? Yeah. Uh, and we had a mutual friend. And sure enough, I'm sitting in the basement with a marker in my hand, drawing out like which brands to get involved in and why. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and you're thinking probably, and you're not saying it, you're thinking, who, who on <laughs> earth is this dude? Well, you probably are thinking the same thing, I'm sure. So, you know, who, what type of guy gets in a plane and flies to hang out in my basement for two days? So, it's, uh, But it's been a great run, I think for both of us and you know uh thanks for having me rick appreciate it i mean yeah your your unbelievable story and unbelievable success really cool yeah and then thank you for sharing and of course barry uh please do the same i mean barry is a name that i'm sure most people on the on the call know and kbp foods is i i don't know the number now barry you probably do the third or second or fourth largest franchisee in the country by store count and maybe by revenues too i'm not 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 exactly sure but but uh barry please introduce yourself yeah yeah, sure thing. So my, uh, my name is Barry Dubin. Uh, Rick, thanks for having me here today and look forward to sharing thoughts with the group. So uh, KBP, myself and a, a gentleman named Mike Culp uh, uh, co-founded KBP in 2011. In fact, on April Fool's Day, and I always joke, I'm not sure who's the, uh, I'm not sure the joke is on. Um, but anyway, April 1st of 2011. So we're coming up on our 10 year anniversary. Uh, Mike at the time was uh, working uh, in, in our predecessor ent entity. It was a uh, primarily a KFC franchisee, uh, approximately 60 restaurants. Uh, and the senior partner in that business uh, was was seeking to kind of transition and do something else. And uh, Mike was, um, uh, you know, of, of a mind to grow the business uh, from that point. So uh, we partnered and over the course of the last 10 years have completed about 65 acquisitions uh, in the KFC and Taco Bell space, spanning from one uh, unit where we've done uh, many one-unit deals all the way up to a 90-unit add-on at one point in time. Uh, today, we have uh, close to 800 restaurants. Uh, we're in 29 states. Uh, again, KFC is our predominant brand, and we're growing in Taco Bell as well. My, my role within the business is, is actually quite similar to what Mike's is. I, I oversee kind of the financial part of the business, uh, strategy, M&A, real estate, uh, having been as acquisitive as we, we've been, you know, both the, the, uh, the function of buying businesses and then also the buy and sell of real estate is, uh, you know, it's been a pretty full-time uh, uh, role over the course of the last 10 years within our business. You know, additionally, we, we do uh, uh, spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the planning of our business from a financial perspective. So the partners, whether it be equity or our, our lending uh, syndicate, uh, we spend a fair amount of time working with them and making sure that we continue to, to cultivate that relationship. And so that's also a big, a big part of what I do within our business. And so uh, myself and Mike are uh, both on the board of our business and we have a, a large family office that uh, is uh, the largest shareholder of our business that's uh, the other board member. So we are continuing to grow the business and, and seeking to find opportunities both within uh, Yum and, and also selectively looking at some things outside of Yum as well. 65 acquisitions, Mike Tierney. Think about that. You know, I mean, he has all his hair and it's not that gray either. I don't, I don't know how he does it, man. You know, it, it's that's, pretty great. That's, 
Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, what an incredible story, 65 acquisitions over. I mean, what what's the number of years, uh, you know, Barry, would you say? Would I mean, I'm, I'm throwing a number out there, 2008. You may have said it and I missed it, 2008, 2011. So we're 10-year we'll anniversary coming up in about 60 days. Yeah, wow, congratulations. That's been, Thank it's a, just a tremendous growth story. And, you know, what we'll find out, I mean, if you don't share more about it, I mean, they've really, you know, KBP has started getting into the Taco Bell space in the last year, kind of more meaningfully outside of the KFC uh, Taco Bell multi-brand stores, you know, the uh, base brand Taco Bell business. For those of you who aren't familiar, that's kind of a separate entity than than being a KFC Taco Bell multi-brand franchisee. Uh, so that's been an area of growth for them in the last year. But yeah, I mean, I you know, Mike, back to you. Next couple of questions: How'd you how did you choose Pizza Hut? I mean, I think this is a really interesting one. I spend a lot of time talking with people about the different brands they want to get into. People who might come to me as an investor or as a family office or private equity group. But how did you guys choose the brands uh, and then maybe give us a little high level, uh, as much detail as you like about how you're financed, uh, you know? Sure, sure. Yeah. So when we got in the business, we kind of had a criteria of brands that needed to fit the mold of what we were trying to accomplish. So they had to have enough scale, you know, in the U.S. where we could be own a business that had five, 10, 15 million dollars of earnings eventually without being too big a piece of a pond, you know, had been through multiple recessions and kind of withstood them. So, you know, all the brands we were focused on had over 20 years plus of existence, some opportunity for consolidation and kind of, you know, as we sort of filtered down opportunities within those brands and met with management teams, geography became more important. Um, and, and sort of brand legacy in the markets we were focused on and ultimately wanted to make sure the first business that we bought was enough of a platform that we could kind of scale off of it, you know, versus sort of just dipping our toes in. And, you know, as I said, we probably had eight or 10 brands that fit that criteria. And then you start looking at valuation multiples and what you're trying to accomplish. And, and all the brands, you know, the major brands have sort of positives and negatives about the brand, the brand equity, the, you know, the value um, as an investor versus as an operator, kind of how customers and consumers perceive the brand and, and various um, factors that kind of, I think, allow you to hone in on sort of the sweet spot. So I think one of the things we said is we don't really want to be paying more than five and a half times earnings as an entry point as a, at the start, because we want to feel like if we're buying a business and we can just keep the wheels running as are, it's a, it should generate a pretty decent return without sort of creating any incremental value. And we've really focused on, you know, what are our cash flows, not sort of what are our earnings as we buy into businesses and think about businesses that have no CapEx versus a lot of CapEx. I think the Pizza Hut brand and the first opportunity we had was in, you know, the heartland of Pizza Hut country, which was right around Kansas City. And we ended up building our entire footprint and our main office actually down, down the street from Barry's in, in Overland Parks in Kansas City. Um, and we bought 23 units in Kansas and Missouri and Pizza Hut had been founded in Wichita. The owner we had bought it from had been in the business, you know, close to 50 years. And there was a lot of low hanging fruit from an ops perspective. And ultimately, because of the, the dynamics, both around valuation, geography, and that specific brand, you know, that became a great opportunity for us. We also had looked at a Burger King business in Kansas City also that didn't check those boxes, even though it was in the same market, you know, it's just an example and ultimately started with that. And, you know, we were talking to a number of lenders at the beginning, my partner 
is primarily family office and, you know, myself and, and Victor. So that's our investor base. It's very sort of family ownership style. And I talked to a number of lenders, kind of two floated to the top. And our lender since the beginning has been Texas Capital Bank and Brian Frank. He's been a tremendous partner to us. You know, he had a legacy in franchise the franchise space and kind of went to Texas Capital as they were launching their business. And he was sort of at the same starting point, almost like you, Rick, when you were launching your business, we kind of got in at the same time and then have grown with him versus kind of some of the larger banks where we'd be the lowest guy on a huge totem pole. And that relationship has been great through the years. And we've expanded, as you can imagine, you know, the syndicate. And so now have three other banks that are part of our group. It's been great so far. Yeah, it's great. I'd probably add, you know, for your business, particularly with Pizza Hut, I, you know, the numbers don't aren't exact, but there's somewhere a little less than 100 total franchisees for 6,500 restaurants. And so, uh, you know, when people look to get into a brand from the outside, Pizza Hut might not initially fit some of people's criteria, but they quickly weave themselves through these different brands and see that it's hard to find a 50 unit acquisition or 30 unit acquisition in some of these other tier one brands that are out there. Um, yeah, so, the other so thing I would add, it was, it was important that real estate was part of the strategy. We were not interested in sort of a pure play ops investment at the beginning. Um, so I think in our first uh, acquisition, we acquired 13 fee simple pieces of real estate through the years. We've bought over 80 and have done a variety of sort of strategic activity related to those either redevelopment, some sale leasebacks, some some were holding and will in the future redevelop. And and so that was important because there, you know, had been some opportunity on the real estate side to really take advantage, you know, of sort of some spread and valuation. And and a lot of the Pizza Hut franchisees historically had owned a lot of their real estate, especially those that had been in the brand a long time. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. What about you, Barry? What do you, uh, I'm dying to hear what you have to say. Uh, how, yeah. how did you get into these brands? A little bit different than Mike, but, but uh, unique story too. Yeah, that's right. I, I think so. A lot of the core criteria that Mike mentioned are similar to the way I and we think about the business. We love the fact that our brands are nationally scaled with large uh, media budgets and uh, have stood the test of you know multiple economic cycles over the last 30 or 40 years. So that's a critical part of what um, you know is our thesis uh, in, in what we're doing. And in particular, over the last year is, is coronavirus is old that I don't think anyone could have ever predicted of course, uh, that outcome, but but the, the meaning the the, uh, the event of a, a major national pandemic, uh, but the uh, the result of that and the resiliency of the sector in in particular large brands, I think is is in retrospect not that surprising given the history that that uh, these brands have have um, have sort of produced over the last 30, 40, 50 years, depending on the brand. So a lot of what Mike says uh, or said, I should say, is similar to kind of how we think about the world and why we are in the brands that we're in. One thing I would add to uh, our thesis as we, uh, Mike Culp and I met about 10 years ago, or really 11 years ago, and we're thinking through, you know, what 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 does KFC at that time look like? And uh, how do we feel about, you know, buying a business in today's world? These brands tend to cycle. And when they're, they're down, uh, they, they can be down for a couple quarters or a couple years. Uh, but there is a 
historic track record that these national brands do almost always recover. There's very few examples, if any, of national brands going out of business. Uh, there's a couple out there that you could, you could point to. But one of the things that was attractive to us uh, at the time, 10 years ago, is, is that there was uh, some you know, challenges that were being experienced organically within the KFC brand. So as you think about entering in and establishing a platform, uh, doing so at the point where you're in more of a cyclical trough in performance and earnings uh, causes you to, to buy a business at a basis that, um, you know, as you look back, hopefully will end up looking like it was a good timing, uh, it was good timing for having made that decision. So, uh, you know, those are, those are kind of effectively the main things that, uh, um, you know, we, the main additional things I would add to what Mike had mentioned in terms of thinking about the scalability as well. Um, and Rick, you mentioned there's a hundred KFC franchisees, there's, you know, several hundred pizza franchisees or several hundred KFC franchisees. And certainly the, if someone's considering their strategy to enter in and become a franchisee, if a portion of their uh, uh, strategy and, and thesis is to be acquisitive and be a consolidator, uh, certainly understanding the fragmentation uh, of those franchisees and the nature of those franchisees, whether there's a, a lot of institutionally backed you know, uh, folks that have private equity partners or alternatively, if there's a lot of second and third generation franchisees who may be seeking some sort of generational transfer to their family or otherwise they don't have that, that, uh, that option to them and may be seeking liquidity, I think is an important uh, you know, criteria to understand as you're considering what brand you may want to enter. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. You like, for example, if you were going to a Taco Bell convention, you could probably it would take you a couple of hands to count the number of Gucci shoes you saw walking around with no socks, right? So, <laughs> so the, in other words, there are more institutional investors in the Taco Bell space, as an example, than there might be in another brand where it's not quite so prevalent, and you might develop your strategy around that. What I thought was interesting, I, I mean, as we just talk about this, couple hundred people on this webinar now, like you know, it's probably there's probably a you know. I don't know. I, we just kind of characterize it as maybe a third or franchisees that are of, of different sizes, maybe a half. And then you've probably got a third or two or so of, uh, you know, family office, private equity folks, and then maybe a third or so of others. And for the private equity folks who, who may not know that point, it's a really good point about momentum in these brands. And it's just something that it's hard to, it's hard to describe, but these brands go through, they, they do have a tremendous record of success over a long period of time, not only at the store level, but as the brand, at the brand level, but they do go through these peaks and valleys and you can get and lose momentum in this business in kind of strange ways. It's sometimes kind of hard to predict. It's, it's hard to see while it's happening. It's easy to see in arrears, you know, but uh, that's kind of a, a weird nature, like a weird thing in this business that, that happens in cycles. I think it's a really good point. Um, yeah. The one thing I would add to that, uh, there are, you know, there's varying reasons that you see those cycles happen, right? So, for example, you may have a series of uh, new product introductions that are unsuccessful and, and you just kind of slowly lose momentum. Uh, you may, as an alternative, have a food safety issue where, you know, there's a uh, belief or in today's world, you know, social media, there's something posted online that there was a, you know, uh, some sort of uh, foreign object in food and, and all of a sudden that hits national press and uh, the brand is down for some you know, meaningful, uh, you know, by some meaningful amount for some period of time, and so there, there's a whole variety of reasons why that can happen. Um, and I think it's fair as you're thinking about entering a brand, you always need to consider the fact that if you're going to have a, let's say, a five to ten year hold cycle, there's almost inevitably going to be a down year and certainly down quarters. 
time and making sure that, you know, the other question here is, is who's your partners? We have a large family office is, is our partner as well. And making sure that you've got the appropriate partners that uh, can understand the cycles and the likelihood that the, the brand will revive and, and not, um, you know, over leverage yourself such that you're forced into a corner to make a, a decision that's unwise at the time and almost time yourself the wrong way. Uh, you know, there's an importance of timing on the way in and also uh, making sure that your timing is as you're considering the exit as well. And so uh, having those partners, both from a, uh, you know, a lender debt comp- uh, perspective, as well as from an equity perspective, I think are critically important uh, within the space. Ah, great answers. Yeah. Great, great comments. Really great comments. Uh, I think uh, there, there's all kinds of meat and potatoes we could get into. I'm going to pivot a little bit here and go uh, in uh, to another slide, if you guys don't mind, and, and just kind of throw around some kind of some different different questions. Uh, how generally has your business been doing, uh, guys, during during COVID? How do you how do you think about that? How, how how have you been? Maybe give us a little bit of a timeline. You know, we we around March the 11th or 12th, we all just kind of thought the world was going to end, right? And then started coming back. Your various brands have have performed uh, in you know better because of just the circumstance, uh, tell us, tell us how it's doing. You know, I'm not asking for any inside information, you know, but so you don't have to speak, you know, uh, overly, overly, uh, specific. Yeah. Mike, do you want me to go first? You want okay. to, yeah. Yeah. Great. So I, I think it's probably not a secret to most on the phone that the, the QSR sector has performed very well. Kind of- once the dust settled a little bit around the initial shock of COVID, you know, uh, without getting into specifics for our business, but having you know, spoken to a lot of other franchisees and lenders and others in the industry, generally speaking, the first you know four to six weeks when COVID hit was was very very challenging for the industry. The the anecdotal you know word on the street you hear from a lot of people, which I think makes sense, is is that people were hunkering down at home. They were going to Costco or the local grocer and spending two or three times what they were typically going to spend at a, a grocery visit and saying, I'm not leaving my house for several weeks. And our business, um, in, you know, not just KFC or Taco Bell, but I think the entire sector is, uh, is, is, is largely uh, dependent upon the mobility of our consumers. Although now with digital and delivery, that's becoming a little bit less the case, but still very dependent upon that. And um, as people become less mobile, as they did very much so during that first four to six week period, uh, the entire sector, as well as our business, took a, a very substantial hit. And for those that are in the industry, you know, recognize that the, the the industry is a relatively low margin on a percentage of sales basis with with a relatively high degree of fixed cost, and so the the tolerance for downside in revenue and maintaining you know positive cash flow, not just profitability but also cash flow, uh, more importantly, is not that substantial. So you started hearing that businesses were down, you know, 15, 20, 30, 35, 40 percent. I mean, it, it ran the gamut, but call it 20 to 40 percent is probably about the average of what you'd hear. I know it's a broad range, but some brands were you know, faring better than others in a business that being down three to 5% in a year is sort of like code red, big problem. So it was, it was extremely uh, concerning for, I think, all in the industry for that period of time. Uh, kind of a, as the uh, pandemic settled a little bit, um, what uh, transpired is, is, is that uh, there was some a significant amount of stimulus, of course, pumped into the economy, both to consumers uh, as well as uh, uh, directly to businesses. And we found over the course of the last nine or so months since that um, uh, that initial trough transpired is is that 
the sector is really an indirect beneficiary of stimulus as it's been put into the economy. So very recently, uh, the trend in the industry uh, tends to be at the beginning of the year that people have stretched themselves financially heading into the holidays. And so heading into January, sales really do take a significant hit in particular. In a lot of brands, you see a reduction in the check size because people have less money. So they're coming in a little bit less frequently, but when they're there, they're spending a lot less money. This year, what the, the industry is seeing is, is they're seeing really no winter because stimulus checks hit essentially at the 1st of January. So when, whereas people would typically being sort of at a point of exhausting their financial uh, wherewithal, they've received a stimulus check right at the perfect time relative to that holiday season. And so uh, the industry tends to be performing very, very well right now, which is really kind of, uh, if you look at sales dollars, the industry uh, tends to be selling uh, as much product as we would typically be in, say, in October. But you're comparing that to a traditional January from last year. And so percentage increases look outstanding. Uh, dollar sales look like there just isn't going to be a winter this year. And so from a sales perspective, we've uh, I think the sector's seen that and, uh, from a margin perspective, many people have shut down their lobbies and, and in many cases continue to have them closed. And when you combine higher average check, as mentioned, that people are spending more money when they come to the restaurant with closed lobbies, uh, with an increase in digital sales, which uh, carry higher check and, and higher margins, the industry is seeing a kind of a renaissance in the form of the mar- or in in in, um, in terms of margins that are being generated. Uh, you know, an industry order of magnitude, uh, average brand probably in a scaled franchise is you know ten nine to twelve percent EBITDA margins is probably a good range, uh, depending on the brand and the size of the business and volumes. And um, I think people are generally seeing two to three hundred basis point lifts. So when you think about it on a percentage basis, order of magnitude twenty five ish percent. Growth uh, in margins um, as a result of what's going on with COVID. So it's been a certainly a, a complete. Uh, it's, it's been a windfall both from a sales and a margins perspective for the business. I think, and it's beautiful because I say the exact same things. And for those of you who listen, it's it's like uh, I just like drop the mic. You know, great job, Barry. It's, it was excellent. It's great. I mean, you could if that wasn't rehearsed, it's, it, it it doesn't need to be for the future. It was perfectly perfectly laid out. Uh, the only little funny thing I'll say is I remember at, at the beginning, you talked about the lockdown that started happening and I had to start mailing toilet paper from our office out to Derek Ball in Colorado because he didn't have any. Because remember how no one had toilet paper back in March and April? I mean, I, you know, I don't know, man. It was crazy. It was crazy. But uh, that was great. Fantastic overview and, and absolutely 100% what we're seeing in the business too. Mike, what, what say you? I mean, I guess I'd say before I transition to Mike, you know, you're heavily invested, uh, you know, Barry's heavily invested in KFC, uh, less invested in Taco Bell, but growing, you know, there has been some difference in the different segments within QSR, right? So some, we saw, I've personally seen that burgers, in many cases, some burgers, depending on the delivery mechanism and the type of brand, I, I won't name which ones, have been doing really well and others haven't been doing well. Chicken as a segment has typically been really outperforming, maybe because it carries well and can be delivered and can feed a whole family pretty easily. And pizza has been one of those big beneficiaries of the last of this renaissance that Barry's talking about, Mike. So what say you about your business, about the pizza business? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and the only other sort of macro things I would add that Barry touched a lot of it and uh, was very eloquent in, in what he described. I think, you know, for the non-pizza brand, sort of the businesses that weren't focused on off-premise or delivery, it definitely accelerated the prioritization of technology and kind of the intersection between delivery and, and how do our customers want to eat going forward. All of the 
sort of non-pizza brands had been dipping their toes probably in a casual way into rewards programs and who are our customers and technology. And I think, you know, when COVID ends, which hopefully is soon for everyone's, you know, mental health, you know, that will be one of the areas that this will have catalyzed for all of the major brands and will continue to have an edge over either mom and pops or small chain restaurants because, you know, that has become an important part of their, the business and figuring out how to do that economically long-term is kind of a, a big frontier for just, you know, the chicken burger or taco space. And so, you know, I anticipate that being, you know, there's, a, there's probably a race on that front. And, you know, an example is Chipotle invested a huge amount of money into their technology and from a standing start only a couple of years ago now have this wide open lead on, you know, their app and mobile web and things like that. And so that's one piece. I think the second piece is customers want, you know, in a time of crisis, whether it's economic or in this case, health, people want safety and reliability and what they know. And it's another reason this asset class has performed well is because you don't know the safety protocols of, you know, John's pizza at the corner or who he is hiring or what they're doing in the kitchen, but you can be sure a brand like Yum or Inspire Brands is cascading down safety, you know, protocols and things to keep the employees and customers both safe um, and reliable and is at the forefront of safety for its people and its customers. And so I think people go to what they know and what is safe. And I, you would see that probably in Barry's business as well as ours, where people, you know, they don't want to try some generally in our business, not a crazy new product. You know, it's a lot of pepperoni pizzas or meat lover pizzas or things that they order um, that is a regular normal thing. And they're ordering bigger tickets. You know, obviously Pizza Hut was about 10% dine-in pre-COVID and, it, you know, for most of COVID, the dining rooms have closed. And so we generally lagged and, you know, it's publicly disclosed roughly our competitors who are hundred percent delivery and carry out, about 10 points from a same store sales basis during COVID, but it's been, you know, one, you know, it's been one of the subsectors of QSR that has, you know, really performed quite well, you know, and prior to COVID and probably, you know, this was starting to change in the middle of 2019, definitely in Papa John's and for sure um, in Pizza Hut towards the end of the year where there had been a chase to value. And I think people had stepped off the throttle of value and were slowly moving away from the focus on, you know, Domino's had been on $7.99 for 10 years. And that was catalyzed during uh, COVID as well, because the new constructs that Papa John's and Pizza Hut had launched, coupled with sort of the lack of local options, the lack of dining, really accelerated the business in the pizza sector. You know, I anticipate 2021 being another very, very, you know, good year for QSR broadly and, and definitely for pizza. You know, and obviously the equity that you know, pizza brands have with their customers of being one of the historic go-tos for delivery and carry out where we really do it well. You know, we and Papa John's and Domino's get your pizza there faster and hotter than any aggregator could that's out there. And we employ our own drivers and it's a, it's a seamless integration of ops and delivery. And I think that's something that, you know, has become more and more important, you know, that the, the, the long-term story on the aggregators is unknown. You know, I think, you know, Domino's has come out of said it and we basically, you know, Pizza has said that, you know, if we're going to do it, it's very cautiously, but we're, we're really focused on delivering our own food because the economic model for the aggregators themselves is a tough, tough unit economic model. And so, you know, I anticipate continuing to see strong performance this year, you know, and putting aside some of these wacky laps where, you know, there's no March madness. And then, you know, to Barry's point, every, you know, every restaurant was closed for some period of time. You know, I think the numbers, if you look back on a two or three year lap, will be very, very strong. 
And I, you know, you and I were talking about this with Barry last week, and it's interesting. You know, Mike, you're a you're a pretty. Uh, well, I say generally, uh, you know, knowing you, both of you guys, I consider Mike to be pretty conservative in your in your views. You're not going to be like out there saying things that are overly aggressive. But I get the sense that you're pretty bullish, actually pretty bullish on the, you know, and Barry, I'd like to hear your point too, about like what's going to happen in 2021. And, you know, I mean, we're going to, we're going to talk about like politics and taxes and minimum wage and all this stuff in just a minute, but just like generally speaking about, about like the sales and performance uh, profitability performance of these brands going forward. I mean, a lot of people might be saying, Oh crap, as soon as we get to May or June and we roll over next year, last year's numbers, everything's going to be falling apart from the same store sales basis, but you don't seem to feel that way. I don't know how Barry you feel, but uh, tell, tell us, give us a little perspective on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll give mine. I'd love to hear Barry's. I mean, I, I think what's happened in COVID is that there's been a greater demand. There's been a way more stomachs to fill at home, but there's also been way more restaurant supply to do it. And I know for myself, you know, like I'm willing to have a mediocre Italian meal delivered to me or a mediocre steak during COVID, but I can assure you the minute that it's over, I may have that less frequently, but I'm only gonna have it outside of my house. I'm no longer gonna get Gibson's delivered and have an okay $50 steak or something like that. I think, you know, so there is this sort of expectation in my mind that some of these, these businesses, and obviously all of QSR was moving more off premise prior to COVID, is that people are gonna really leave the house and wanna have an experience. And that, well, there will be some off premise that comes from some of the casual dining chains or others that's sticky. I think the likelihood of that being anywhere near the levels that it's at right now is fairly low. And you have sort of prior to COVID, two things were happening. One was there were clearly way too many restaurants in the U.S., whether it was QSR, fast casual, casual dining or fine dining. And everyone was expecting a correction, which I think post government stimulus and PPP sort of the jury's out on what's going to happen with restaurants. So my expectation is there was going to be long term closures and less restaurants out there. So I think that is a bit, that's pretty important, you know, to talk about that that was gonna happen before. And I think kind of coming into this, there's just gonna be this year a continued knowing what I want, I wanna have at home and I want it to be good. And that's why I'm pretty bullish on pizza. What say you, Barry? Yeah, it, so we were actually going through, we do a five-year plan every year, and we really spend a lot of time focusing on the first two years of that plan and year three, four, and five, or, you know, I guess, uh, why not do it if you're going to put together a multi-year plan, but we, we spend less brain damage on, on that, and uh, there's been a lot of analysis discussion happening over the last couple of weeks within our business about what do we feel like 2021 and 2022 will look like as a result of that process. And more globally, I think the way I would describe it is, is that if you consider, we're really looking at 2021 and comparing it to, to 2019 for the most part, and especially then 2022, because we believe that kind of towards the end of this year, fall to winter with the vaccine rolling out, uh, one would, I think, suspect that the odds are the world will be become a little bit more normalized, although I do think that the uh, sort of the psyche of the consumer may take, will likely take longer to return back to be an absolute norm. Uh, things like pent up demand we're a little concerned about. So for example, in, in our business, uh, you know, uh, your competitor may very well be, am I going to go to Applebee's for dinner on Friday night or am I going to order KFC? And I think there will be some pent up demand of I haven't been able to go to Applebee's or name another casual brand that's a comp you know competitor of ours for some time. And so there may be some 
periods of softness. The question is, is how quick it comes and how, how deep and long it lasts. Net net, the answer from our perspective is, is that the, the benefit of COVID, will, the, the outcome from COVID will be somewhere between good and very good, depending on how much of, you know, the, the sort of the uptick was retained. We think some of it will be certainly not all of it as the world reopens a little bit. Uh, the other thing I would note is, is that, you know, hopefully a lot of scale operators have done this, but w- one thing that, that our business has been uh, fortunate to be able to do is, is given the, the cash we've generated, we've really uh, positioned our balance sheet in a way that's, you know, quite favorable. And I think a lot of operators out there have that same dynamic going where they've delevered through the paid out of debt or are, are sitting on a significant amount of cash. And so I think there's a feeling amongst the, the sector in general that, uh, again, it's sort of somewhere between it, it will be, we'll look back in three to five years and say that was good or it was really good. And the jury's a bit out, but the good news is, is that people at this point in time, uh, I think generally are, are very well positioned from a financial perspective uh, to weather some of that uncertainty that inevitably is going to uh, play itself out over the next 18 to 24 months. So, you know, this is, uh, you know, the podcast and everything we do is related to buying and selling things. So it's interesting to hear your perspective. So this means that you guys, if I'm just hearing this, you guys are optimistic. That means you're going to be buying stuff, right? Paying high prices for it because because uh, the future is looking fantastic. Is that is that what I thought I just heard from both of you? Maybe uh, not. Maybe so. Yeah. Huh? What, what do you think? I, I, my personal opinion is the next uh, six, 12 months of restaurant m and are going to be very interesting to watch because there's a discussion around what's the right EBIT, what, you know, what, what's the appropriate EBITDA and what's the appropriate multiple. Ultimately, of course, what matters most is what's the purchase price someone's willing to pay for a business. And as I noted earlier, I think the average brand has probably seen a 25-ish percent uh, you know, organic EBITDA growth number last year. This maybe maybe even a little low. I don't know, Rick, you've, you've seen more uh, broad-based side of information than we do, but you know, that, that's my hunch is in that range. And so if you take a business that you know, last year, or 2019 was doing, let's say, you know, 10 million of EBITDA, and it's now doing 12 or 13 of EBITDA. And if you apply, let's say, a multiple of six times for that business, you've all of a sudden gone from paying, you know, 60 million to, uh, yeah, everyone can do the math, 72 to 75 million for that business. And if all of a sudden EBITDA reverts all the way back to 10, a pre-COVID number, you just paid seven and a half times for a business based on its pre-COVID earnings. So uh, I think it's going to be quite interesting to, to watch. And I think there's going to uh, be more launch processes that, that, that fail than typical in the industry, because there's going to be expectations from sellers that may be a little bit uh, disjointed from where buyers are, are willing to pay for assets. Uh, so it, it is going to be very interesting to watch what happens, I think, in the, in the near term and from an M&A perspective. Yeah. I mean, so I think, you know, obviously one factor is, you know, where lenders are willing to lend and they're not paid to take risk and to take bets on what is the, you know, what are the normalized earnings of these businesses? I think at the same time, we have a historically low equity yield environment and we have a huge amount of cash sitting on the sidelines, particularly, you know, high net worth, you know, families, family office capital, even private equity in some respects. And, you know, for guys like Barry and I that have purchased probably strategically and because we have existing infrastructure, you know, we and bought some small deals, et cetera, you know, we're paying six times or something for these businesses. Seven and a half times may not sound too expensive if they can still generate a 12 or 15 percent cash yield 
you know, where the leverage levels are. So I think a lot of it will be determined by the type of buyers that are out there. And I, you know, to our original question around why did we get in the space or why was it an interesting investment asset classes, you know, you can sort of add pandemic, not just resilience, but sort of, you know, almost like negatively correlated to it. You know, we outperformed during the pandemic as another positive characteristic of the asset class. And so if people are looking for yield where treasury, 30-year treasuries are at a point, you know, and you can't, you can't get any yield out there in any asset class, it really does become an interesting one because it's been around for decades and decades. And broadly speaking, to, you know, to Barry's point, I mean, it wasn't until only recently so that sort of this margin war took off that had some in- issues for franchisees on their P&Ls from a margin perspective. If your worst year is down two or three points of same-store sales and a grand slam year is two or three points up, I mean, there's really no other industry out there that has you know, these little movements and has just broadly over a long period of time been within such a narrow, narrow bandwidth. And so, you know, there were a lot of people interested in this space prior to COVID. I think, you know, guys that are already in the space are going to sort of have different expectations that than people that are looking to get into it. And I think ultimately lenders, you know, will impact people's ability to grow. And the last thing I'll say is like, the performance of these businesses are, are good. And I think you hear from Barry and I that we're pretty bullish on our businesses. You know, I'm not sure we're going to be guys meeting other people halfway that are saying, well, that's not normalized EBITDA. I can continue to, you know, drive cash flow to my, our partners um, and, you know, pay down debt and reinforce the balance sheet for the next couple of years and, and see how it plays out and be positive about the direction of the brand versus compromising on, you know, I'm going to assume that this is going back to where it was in 2019. So those are some other dynamics with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and you say, yeah, I mean, all great points. And I think the M&A market for 2021 will certainly be an interesting one. I mean, I've been character, I've been asked that a lot in the last couple of days and weeks. And I guess I would say from our little microcosm of what we're doing, I would say that we're seeing probably an overall increase in, activity and unbridled, uh, you know, from sellers calling us wanting to sell their businesses, maybe up 15 or 20%, maybe year over year, which would, uh, you know, our deal size is growing too. So, and, and we're working off of a base that's kind of wonky and weird, but my sense is that you're probably going to have more people selling obviously this year than last year, maybe about the same or less than we're selling in 2019, our deal size and our market share is increasing, and that's a blessing. But uh, I think you're probably going to be seeing an inordinate amount of smaller franchisees and maybe franchisees located in the southeast, potentially in some of the Midwest areas that have low minimum wage, potentially selling. You, you know, those those franchisees who may own five to ten to fifteen locations just don't have the breadth and to be able to handle all of the mess of everything that's going on. While you all uh, may be happy with. PPP loans and all the protocols and the closing down the dining rooms and the EBITDA lifts and all these things that you're doing, you know, it's, it's really taxing on a smaller operator. And so the continued consolidation has to happen, I think, in 2021. And there are some headwinds at play, too. But I see the same thing here, too, with with a lot of franchisees who are now sitting on businesses that are, uh, you know, they in their in their minds, whether it's worth 25 uh, percent more than it was worth or not. It's, it's always worth what someone's willing to pay. They're making 25% more in EBITDA than they were before. And, and that, I think, is creating an expectation that, you know, that, that all of a sudden my business is, is, is better, materially, materially better than what it was. And that's something we're going to have to see how that plays out between what a seller is willing to sell something for and what you guys are willing to buy it for. And, 
usually the answer is it's somewhere in between, depending on the service. Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the things you bring up, Rick, is imp- is interesting from an investment perspective, which is like most of the, the people that have had success investing in the space, it's not because they, some people lucked into a brand that grew eight or 10% same store sales for 10 years and they grew their top line and their bottom line organically without sort of acquisition or meaningful development. Mm-hmm. Most people have been able to get relatively attractive leverage. They've paid down debt and these businesses cash flow consistently year after year after year. And if you look at them, you know, top line isn't really growing that much, bottom line isn't growing, but because you can get very inexpensive, attractive debt and you can buy these at very attractive, you know, multiples you are generating a meaningful amount of cash flow. And so I think that is a consideration. I think there's obviously other things you mentioned, changes in tax code or minimum wage or things like that. And, and one of the things you know that we've talked a little bit about is people that have been in this business a long time have very no basis in their business. And so things like long-term capital gains, if you're a small business owner, can have a meaningful difference in your retirement and things like that. So I think I agree that some of the smaller operators, this may be an opportune time, particularly if you think long-term capital gains is going up in 2022 or, or thereafter. But you've been given a shot in the arm too, right? Like, I mean, who, and the, the problem that always is with the smaller operators is they, is most of, I mean, I don't want to characterize everyone in the same bucket, but a lot of them don't have the foresight to see that when you've just gone through an event as unfortunate as COVID is, but if you've gone through an event that's really strong and has strengthened your business, like the time to sell a business is to sell it when it's, when it's at the top, not to kind of like ride the horse until it, until it's like back down or, or times like, like I, I, I see it, I hear it all the time. Like, why would I sell my business is going great. I'd sell it when it's not doing well anymore. And I think, Oh man, you know, that's, that's not, that's not the right way to think about that. But um, what about yeah. politics? I see a lot of, Barry, go ahead and answer that. Yeah. I know you, you probably have some comments. Yeah. One quick thing to add to that, to that point, Rick is, is I think the majority of people are going to see their earnings peak around Memorial day of this year, right? Cause that's when COVID had hit and people had sort of were rolling those very weak results from call it you know middle of March to middle of April or late April for most people. So by Memorial Day, you're going to get to that point. And I, I think the the majority of brands are going to see some uh, compression on earnings from call it June to the end of this year. Um, the question is, and this is where the big debate will be, is is what's that compression in earnings? Are earnings going to be they went let's say plus 25 all of last year? Are they going to be down five percent in 2021, or are they going to be down 25 percent? And I think the answer is probably somewhere in between. Between that, I think there will be some meaningful uh, hit to the majority of brands out there. And, and so, Rick, to your point, the question just becomes if you're an, a seller and you're thinking about selling and or you're or an operator, I should say, and you're thinking about selling and to add to Mike's point, you've got capital gain risk heading into 2022. If you start thinking, say, well, let me launch a process in, you know, September and hopefully get this thing closed by the end of the year. Well, the problem is, is that in September, you're going to have, you know, prob- probably more benefit depending how, how bullish you are on the brand. But in September, you're going to have a pretty good idea as, as to how this year it's going to shake out. If you wait that long and, and it's not a very strong summer, given the, the, the strength of the rollover you're facing, I think there will be, you know, some reconciliation to what valuations look like as a result of that. So it's, it's kind of an interesting bet if you're an operator thinking about selling your business. Do you try to do it soon or do you wait and you know, you know, and, and do it over Labor Day once it's proven out that the rollover is going to be pretty strong in, in 2021. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. 100%. Let me jump in and ask a couple of questions, see a couple of questions. Let's see if I can bang out some of these questions really quickly. I saw one like, how do you find investors like you guys for your businesses? 
Well, that, that that's a plug for Unbridled Capital. You call, <laughs> you call us, you call Unbridled Capital. We help you find that kind of an investor for your business. You know, you go to the trade shows, you, you know, you, 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 you attend industry events like this, you get to know people through networking. It's hard to do in a virtual environment, which is how we kind of jumped into these podcasts and, and webinars and things. Let's talk about the, here's a question from a, a dear friend, $15 minimum wage cap gains increases. What say you guys on the, on how that'll affect your business and whether we'll see it in, in 2021 or when we'll see it? Yeah. I mean, that's a long, there's not a short answer to that. I don't think, but I, you know, from my perspective, you know, going there nationally, I mean, I think it hurts mom and pop, either operators, mom and pop businesses initially and drives up unemployment, which is fairly high right now. And if it's rolled out nationally, it's going to impact everyone, you know, competitors and others alike. So you can see that there's going to be some inflation related to it. And ultimately, you know, it, it generally is a is sort of tough to see how it's a benefit, obviously, to our business. But I think if you can look at it over a medium or long term horizon, if everyone's wages are going up, you know, you're going to see, you know, price increases. And I think, once again, you're going to see an acceleration in investment in technology and ways to sort of mitigate the need for labor. You know, the, the other thing, and Barry would have a much wider survey of this, but, you know, we're operating in nine states and even many of those states have an eight dollar minimum wage. Our effective minimum wage is whatever Walmart or McDonald's is paying their employees in our towns. And so. Well, it might say eight dollars, and you might think, "Oh my gosh, we're going up such a such a large amount." The actual impact to many of us—I mean, we don't want to hire employees that are going to be on minimum wage that long. We want to be hiring people that want to grow in our organization. And so, ultimately, the length of time that someone's on minimum wage, you know, is is hopefully not going to be that long, and we're going to be paying them more because they're going to be doing more. And I would say, lastly, you know, almost two thirds of our employees are are delivery drivers. Um, who make tips and generally make above $15 as it is. So a big piece of our labor force, well, well, I think it will have a trickle down effect to other, other folks as it's implemented, you know, are already above that level. Um, so I think if you have a medium long-term view on it, you know, it'll be okay. And obviously, you know, the bigger chains with the bigger technology budgets and things like that will have tools that mom and pops and local operators won't to sort of offset some of those. Yeah. The, the, the two things I would add to that, I agree with all of Mike's points. First of all, I think there'll be a lag effect. Minimum wage will increase in a stair step, and there's always going to be a lag effect of the ability to pass along pricing. But if we, we've done studies in our business, we own restaurants, everything, everywhere from New York City to on the Mexican border of Texas to Miami to you know Detroit, Michigan, and, and a lot of places in between. So we've got all kinds of different uh, wage uh, environments. And generally speaking, if you go into a restaurant in New New York City versus a place that's got $8 minimum wage and you look at the pricing, you'll see that the, the pricing will more or less make up for that. So while there may be a lag effect, I don't believe the long-term uh, impact will be that substantial. I, I believe that's an over-advertised risk of this industry personally. And the, the second thing I'll note is more globally, I think that the new administration in Washington will provide tailwinds in 2021 to our industry, primarily as it relates to uh, supporting the consumer. So the initiatives that will be brought on right away will be supportive of the consumer and the sector is very clearly displayed be, uh, being an indirect beneficiary of that support to the consumer. And then as you head into 2022, not that it's necessarily paid on year, but I do think there'll be more of a, a headwind that will su switch in terms of regulatory issues, wages, which again, I, I think will be, you know, in terms of a lag effect, more of, a, of an issue than a permanent uh, impact. 
but I do, uh, you know, my opinion is 2021 is going to be quite strong in, in, as, as it relates to the consumer, uh, given the support it's gonna, that we're going to see uh, pushed out in the form of stimulus 3.0 and maybe 4.0. Uh, and then kind of the reality is going to settle in a little bit more as you head into next year. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't disagree at all. I think you're exactly right, Barry. You know, the only thing we didn't really talk about is taxes. And clearly, if you're, you know, in our our job doing sell-side M&A and the clients and the deals that you're looking at, that's a motivator as well, right? You think you might have to pay higher capital gains taxes, whenever that might be, whether it's, you know, delayed until 2022 or retroactive for January 1st, 2021, which most people think won't happen. It's it's still a a factor, but I agree with you. I think we're going to see a good year this year and we're going to see some pretty severe headwinds in 2022 that that I, I, you know, maybe maybe they're more severe than what people really realize. But a lot of that's macroeconomic, too. Some of it regulatory. OK, we've got just a few minutes. Let's go rapid fire. So any brands and segments you're not operating in that you really like right now? Mike and Barry? I have a bit of a contrary. You know, I'm interested in um, casual dining, you know, as we speak. And I've been spending some time on it, trying to get a better sense of the landscape. And so, you know, broadly speaking, I'm looking at both brands as a franchisee as well as sort of mid-sized, maybe sleepy brands themselves, you know, besides sort of continuing to look at other QSR opportunities. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Barry? A challenge for us is just given the size of our business. Yeah. And if we any individual segment to be, let's say, at least 20% of EBITDA when you're 800 restaurants, people can do the math. Uh, you effectively need to be in a place where you probably can get to, uh, the equivalent of the profitability of 250 QSR uh, outlets, which may be in a, a higher volume concept, 100 to 150. So we, we really are, are limited in, in the brands that might be of interest to us just to, based on that reality of scale. You know, we were at one point a, a franchisee of a brand that we were, we were larger than the franchisor in terms of its EBITDA. And that happened just we grew at such a clip. And, and so we're, I think our filter is pretty limited just based on our scale. You know, casual dining is interesting. I think there are some people I've heard others like Mike say that they're, uh, you know, given where they are in the cycle, similar to my comment, you know, and, and when we got into the business about 10 years ago, there, there are some the casual dining, there will be some ongoing the schedule die is not going to die altogether and there will be some winners. And, and this is probably pretty close to a cyclical trough, you know, one would think. Uh, so it, it's an interesting play, I think, to think about casual. You know, geography too, I'm starting to hear more and more people reconsider the higher wage states because they already have enacted a lot of the minimum wage legislation that yeah. would, would already lead them to believe that they're buying a P&L that, that uh, is largely already accounted for for higher wages. So I thought I thought that was interesting. People talking about specifically the northeast, northeast and west coast in a way that's much less unfavorable than it has been in the past. So not to throw water on that, I think some of the challenges are not directly economic in, in some of those as well. They're policies beyond just a minimum wage, you know, as far as you know, just protections and, and difficulty to be in business is, you know, is something we've thought about that too, Rick, and it's a very valid point. And I think you have to weigh, you know, those risks, you know, you know, in conjunction with the actual $15, because there's just other things that have happened as well that are, that have been tough to look at. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Good. good, Nice comment. Okay. A couple of minutes left here. Uh, Let's say we'll do one question on this slide and then I'll jump into some of the Q and a and bang that out. And then we'll, and then we'll end up here. So any longer term trends, the trends or anything that you, you guys would see, 
Um, and let's let's maybe make it specific to buying and selling uh, franchise restaurants. Any comments about what you think might change coming out of COVID from an M&A perspective in the franchise space? Uh, anything may jump out at you? Yeah, so I, Mike mentioned this earlier, uh, and I agree with this point, which is, is, I, is you know, if you look back 10 years, I feel like uh, the franchise space was considered somewhat of a specialty industry, almost like healthcare to a generalist investor, where it's, hey, you either have to have an expert or don't touch it. Heading prior to COVID, I believe it was becoming more of a mainstream uh, category for institutional investors to consider. And I think coming out of COVID, that will even be greater given the you know lack of you know, how do you get access direct to the U.S. consumer here uh, with the Amazon impact on a lot of businesses and the resiliency that the the, uh, the sector displayed here during COVID. So I anticipate that there will be even more offices and in and, uh, and funds that are considering the sector that had not been prior to COVID. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mike, got anything uh, in up, up your sleeve? Any uh, any thoughts? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think the bear, it's not like a, investing in apartment buildings where if you miss one, there's one down the street. So I think there will be continued demand for this um, because there are high barriers to entry. And once you're in, you know, the cash flow profile historically across, you know, just the average across the 10 brands we're kind of talking about is very stable and very robust. And so just anticipate that growing as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic. I'd love to get into the last question because you guys are both brilliant and you see what I see, which is a inflated stock market and fully blown asset classes. So uh, where do you put your money personally? Or, you know, if you're a business investor, I think that's one of the reasons why this business in this industry and franchising may, may, like you all say, uh, uh, become even hotter than it has been, but we don't have time for it. But I wanted to thank both of you, man. You know, what a tremendous uh, time. We're just really thankful. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be an exciting next few quarters for us all. I wish you guys, man, just great guns in your businesses. And thank you so much for your time. And for everyone who, who listened and joined in today, thank you all for joining. And Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a good time. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.